This is episode 012. Welcome back to Starting with a Story. My name is John Lee, recent college graduate who just happened to stumble upon a microphone. And each week, I hope to bring you a person or story that motivates and inspires you to grow and connect with more people every single day. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get to our story. you are ready for a fantastic interview today. This week's guest is Greg Thomas, or better known as Coach T. He's a passionate coach, a public speaker, and an international selling author. He has a book out currently called Race in America, A Call to Heal, and I highly recommend it. You'll get a little taste of what the book is all about, because today we're going to dive into Coach T's life. You're going to hear stories of his experiences of pain and the stories behind his passion for helping others and healing the hatred and turmoil in our world today through respect and kindness. I am so pumped to share this one with you all. Now let me introduce you to the one and only Coach T. All right, welcome to Starting With The Story. We have a wonderful interview here today and I'm so excited to introduce you guys to the one, the only, Greg Thomas, or better known as Coach T. Hello out there, you guys. Great to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, so actually, the way Coach T and I met was actually pretty interesting. I was volunteering in Kansas City, Missouri, and it was Halloween night. I had a bag full of candy, and I called an Uber, and uh, long behold, Coach T rolled up. I uh, walked in, and his enthusiasm just really captured me, and he told me about this book, right? You have a book right now? Oh, yes, it's called Race, Race in America, A Call to Heal. Awesome, awesome. So the audience doesn't really know much about you, so I'd love to hear more about who you are and just kind of tell us about your story. Okay. Well, like I said, my name is uh, Greg Thomas, but most people around the country know me as Coach T. I've been a coach for 36 years, mostly high school, coached some youth as well, uh, some semi-pro football, but uh, I was an All-American wrestler at Central Missouri State University. Now they call it UCM. So I graduated from college in 81. Wow. Been a baseball coach, a football coach, a wrestling coach for approximately 36 years. And I've been uh, in schools as far as being a teacher, a para, and a sub. Most of my early years in coaching, I owned an auto parts store. So I just came over in the afternoon and coached. So I kind of went from school to school, so to speak, as far as that's concerned. But I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. I was born, you know, what was kind of interesting, I, I traveled around the country speaking, and I spoke uh, about a month and a half ago on Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his birthday. But my birthday, uh, September 20, 1958, was the day that Martin Luther King was stabbed in the chest in oh, uh, Harlem at a book signing in Harlem, New York. It was a Saturday afternoon. He talks about it in some of his speeches, but little did he know that the day he got stabbed was the day I was born. And uh, so I grew up in Kansas City. You know, in the book, I talk about my parents growing up in the Jim Crow South. They grew up in the 30s and 40s in rural Arkansas and northeast uh, Louisiana. And they grew up as sharecroppers, you know, so they were on a plantation picking cotton. Mother would go to school anywhere from two to four days out of the month. 
The other days, if the weather was decent, you had to be in the cotton fields from sunup to sundown. So it's almost like slavery. So, so I say I'm, I'm one generation from slavery because they couldn't go to school. But if the weather was horrible, real cold or real rainy, you get to go to school. So you can imagine what that was like. Yeah. And my so my, my dad dropped out around 50, 1955 or 56, just couldn't have a duplicity of going to school. Then you're so far behind and people making fun of you. So he eventually came to Kansas City to work. And my mother graduated in 1957 from the Eudora Colored School. They had segregated schools back then. And so she came to Kansas City and they wanted me to, you know, when they have a family, got married, that family wanted me to be in Kansas City, not in the, in the cotton fields, so I could go to school every day. So I maximized my opportunity, did well, well in school, grew up in Kansas City. And as a, as a, a kindergartner in 1963, John F. Kennedy, our 35th president, was assassinated. So I remember all the, all the hoopla and there's a Bruder film and all the, the conspiracy talk back then. But that next year, 1964, LBJ, our 36th president, Linda Baines Johnson, drove by our school. So as a little first grader, I saluted the 36th president. Wow. That's, what? That's, that's one of the first things I remember about, that's uh, one of the few things I remember about first grade is saluting the president. Hmm. Then you fast forward in Kansas City. You know, Kansas City, back in those days in the 60s, uh, I had no idea of all the crazy things going around in our country, you know, like the uh, all the marching and all the, the sit-ins and the all, all the different things that were going on in our country. I didn't know anything about it because we lived in a little cocoon here in Kansas City. Even though it was in the middle part of the city, there were all types of people, and, and it seemed like we all kind of got along. So I wasn't aware of what was going on. But in 1968, uh, April 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. I was nine years old, so I'm 59 now. So 50 years ago, he's assassinated. On the, the very next day, April 5th, I hear a noise out in front of my house. I lived in a place called 3470 Paseo right there in in Kansas City with, you know, pretty good sized street. I heard a noise and I looked out and there were tanks in front of my house heading north in Kansas City to wherever there was rioting. So as a little nine year old kid to look wow. out and see tanks in front of your house, that was, you know, we're used to, you know, Vietnam was going on then and you had mm -hmm. tanks in the jungles of Vietnam, but not on the streets of Kansas City. So that was real weird to see that and it stuck with me. Uh, and so that'll be part of our book, part of our uh, story when we do a movie on this thing. Uh, then yeah, you fast. Wow. You fast forward to 1974. I'm a sophomore at East High School in Kansas City, very diverse school. Seemingly everybody got along pretty well. But one day I'm in my English class, and we hear a noise out in front of the school, and we look out, and there's a big old race ride on our campus. So my whole class ran to the window, and we're looking out, and I'm looking at faces. I'm looking at people I know on both sides, and the police chasing them around, kind of like a movie to remember the Titans type of thing. But I actually lived through that. That was 1974, my sophomore year. So I eventually graduated in our bicentennial in 1976. Um, we had wrestling. I don't know how we ended up getting it. It was a, such a battle for a little uh, school. You know, we wouldn't be considered an inner city type of school because there was so much diversity back then. It was more, there was more whites than there were blacks. But eventually there was uh, what they call white flight. So the whites slowly disappeared. And I remember that as a kid, you know, freshman year, certain, some of my friends uh, ended up going to some of the suburban or country schools. And so that's when that thing kind of started. And so, but still, by the time I graduated, it was still uh, more whites in our school. But we got along uh, pretty well. I did well in wrestling. And I remember I was, uh, it was still considered kind of an inner city type of school mm -hmm. so that, uh, you know, our programs were not very good. And so, uh, so we kind of fledgling wrestling program. We'd go places and just get shut out almost. But I was undefeated. <laughs> my senior year, oh, I was wow. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> I, I did pretty well my junior year, but my senior year, I did real well. I was undefeated. And so in January of 1976, 
the Kansas City Star wrote an article about me. You know, they you know basically said, "Hey, a little inner city kid is undefeated in wrestling. What a story!" At East High School, you know. Yeah. And so oh, the, wow. next, the very next day, someone burned our mats at school. So you know, when you're in a tough situation and someone works hard oh, trying to be successful, sometimes other people want to tear that down. So I remember vividly in my English in my class that day that the that in the fire trucks coming and I saw where they were, which our practice uh, facility was the outdoor a locker room. And so I saw these, all these fire trucks. I ran out of class, tore down the stairs, was going to head into my wrestling room. And a fireman grabbed me and he said, uh, I said, that's my wrestling room. He goes, he said, not anymore. You know, so I was very distraught that they would burn our match, you know, after all the things we'd gone through. But it ended up being a blessing because we got to go to another school to practice the rest of the season. They had a bigger facility, more people to work out with. So it ended up being a blessing. But at the time, it was traumatic to see your wrestling room burn. Yeah, I can't even imagine what what that would be like. You're saying all these stories, and I I literally can't picture any of these happening at any of the schools that I ever grew up in or went to. And you said that was traumatic. So, like, how did you begin that like healing process for yourself? Well, like I said, when it first happened, you know, we we couldn't practice that day. It was just devastating for me. For some reason, I was committed. I was like Gideon. Judges seven <laughs> talks about Gideon with the, his three hundred men of valor. You know. I wanted to be a champion. You know, I saw good guys and I, and I, and there was a, I had a mentor from Blue Springs. His name was Chuck Sears. He took me under his wing, even though he coached at Blue Springs. They were state champs. And I come from East High School. I got to go and work out with him during the summer. So that experience of traveling around the country, going to Oklahoma and Colorado and Tennessee and getting to meet, you know, top level wrestlers, it really mm. encouraged me. So I, so I really improved. And so it was devastating to see, you know, you had somebody trying to be successful and then someone, trying to tear it down by burning down, burning our mats. So that was hard. But it, like I said, it ended up being uh, a blessing in that we got, got a lot more people to work out with because we only had a few guys. Mm-hmm. So I graduate, you know, and then we go. I just tried to determine where I was going to go to college. So I had two choices. I had MU and I had Central Missouri State. And MU was big eight at the time. I was a good baseball player, so I wanted to play baseball and wrestle. But I didn't think I could wrestle at the college level because I just didn't have much experience, but I still had a champion's heart. So I decided to go to Central Missouri. Even though there was, you know, they, they, the coaches said there's going to be some scholarshiping. I said, okay, I'll take some scholarshiping. And I was going to wrestle and play baseball. Now I get cut on baseball the first day. They cut me from the team. And then in wrestling, the coach saw there was a lot of people in my weight class. One of the senior captains was in my weight class. So he said, well, uh, no scholarshiping unless you make varsity. That's all we have scholarships for the varsity guy. So that was, that was way out of my realm, you know, varsity with 10 guys, one senior, stud, junior, but it ended up I worked hard and I became varsity. You know, it was like, whoa. So I went and sat in the office and said, what about some scholarships? He says, well, we can't do anything this year. So that was a little frustrating. But anyway, I had a successful career at CMSU. I ended up my career as a two-time NCAA qualifier, two-time MIAA champion, and uh, my four-time varsity letterman. Uh, wow, so I awesome. very, ended, up, ended up with second in the career, second in career wins at that school from a little inner city program you know so was, mm. I, I didn't understand at the time yet, but i had a lot of success in wrestling phenomenal yeah for sure so after graduating uh where did you find yourself and how did you come to start writing this book and your new story for yourself right. well there's a lot of things that happened and it's, it's more of it's in the book there but uh because i ended up transferring i left central missouri my sophomore year went and played baseball at a school called longview community college so there my baseball, because it's such a bizarre, I couldn't play baseball. Long ago, I got to play baseball. We traveled around the country competing, and I got invited to a Royals tryout, Kansas City Royals. So uh, back then, they had AstroTurf, not the nice grass they have. And so um, I thought that was going to be a path. I was going to get to play some Major League Baseball. 
But uh, when I went to the tryout, I did pretty well, but there's guys that did so much better, so I didn't get invited back. But it was still fun, a fun opportunity. So I wanted to be a coach. So I graduate. Uh, I did my student teaching at a place called Lee Summit High School, just okay. uh, southeast of Kansas City, and I coached baseball and freestyle wrestling. And so it's, at a certain point, the head wrestling coach is getting ready to retire, and he asked me, "Say, you want to be the head coach at Lee Summit? And I said, heck yeah. I said, <laughs> I, I mean, we had so much talent there. Those, and I, I hit it off. Yeah, so of course. Kid. I knew we would win a bunch of titles with the, with the talent I had there. But then a few days later, uh, I was like, so I was coaching baseball. And one of the school board members came up to me uh, after practice, you know, kind of discreetly and called me aside and told me that uh, word had gotten out that I was going to apply for to be the head wrestling coach at uh, Lee Summit. And he said, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a friend of mine. You know, I think he's in my corner. He said, I don't want you to get your hopes up. He says, there's, there won't be any black head coach at Lee Summit or Blue Springs. They're just not ready. This is 1981. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so I applied anyway. They didn't give it to me. And, uh, so then there were seven of us that graduated, seven wrestlers. And like I said, my record was by far, you know, way above their, their records, but they all got jobs. We're all PE, you know, coach types, coaches and wrestling coaches and then PE teachers. And they all got jobs. And so I'm the only one without a job. So I thought, huh, this is kind of interesting. This, you know, not 1881, this is 1981. So I went to the head of my department. I asked her, I said, do you think I'd have a problem getting a job? And she said, oh, no, you'll be the first one to go because the school's trying to make their quota. And I thought, uh-oh, I don't want to go somewhere and be a quota. I don't want to go and be a coach, you know, to be like, this is our black coach, this is our Negro coach type of thing. I want to go and coach and build a program because of what I could do. So I didn't go back to her for uh, advice. But and evidently she didn't know what was going on because everybody already had jobs and I didn't have one. So that was incorrect as well. So uh, I went to all these placement days, and I knew a bunch of people, and it looked like I was going to get a call, but I never got a call. So we all graduate. All the guys are off getting ready for their school. So I came to Kansas City to work at an, an auto parts store and in August. So, you know, we graduated in May. So you got June, July. Then the first part of August, right before football season, a school not too far from uh, central Missouri, Richmond, Missouri, a small town, their head wrestling coach left, and he's also assistant football coach. So that town reached out to central Missouri. He said, hey, do you have anyone qualified to coach wrestling? And sure enough, they sent him my information. So they were like, oh, my goodness, we've hit the jackpot. You know? <laughs> they just assumed that I had blonde hair. I got it. I go to the interview, and everybody's all yeah, excited. Yeah. And they saw me, and it went over my head because I was so excited to have an interview. You know? mm -hmm. I remember saying something like, well, I think we can make this work you know, type of thing. So I had a great interview, and they said, well, come up on Sunday. We interviewed on Friday. She says, come up on Sunday with your wife, and then you talk to the, you know, sign your contract, talk to the head football coach, who was a guy that was my FCA huddle leader in 1975 at Estes Park, Colorado. So I was so excited. Tom Adams yeah, was the head bet, coach. Yeah. Oh, man, I, this is the, you know, the highest of high. So I go in there that Sunday, me and my wife to sign the contract. So we in the office with the principal. He's got my contract laying there beside my schedule. So we go over all the, you know, Second hour, you got this, and then the planned period, and you're off seventh hour. So, I mean, I, oh, I, I can't even, maybe you can imagine how exciting that would be to finally have an opportunity. So, we're about done with the, with going over the details of teaching, and then the superintendent walks in and he said, Excuse me. So, he left. I thought he was, he was going to the restroom. But we waited and waited, and he came back, and he pulled the contract back. He said, I'm sorry. He said, It's not going to work. He said, If you were a math teacher or a science teacher, we'd hire you on the spot. But being a coach, you're a role model, and people would not be happy. You wouldn't get served in restaurants. And so I look over, my wife starts crying, you know, 
and then I'm the coach, you know. So I'm saying, no, no. I said, I know people. I know, I know it'll work. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, yeah. You know, it'll be fine. And they said, so the superintendent said, no. He says, I, I went out and I phone polled everybody on the school board, and they said no black coaches. So he reached in his pocket and he pulled out two dollars and fifty cents. You know, that's like giving you twenty dollars a day meal money for the inconvenience of coming all the way down there. And I told him, I said, you know, it's times like this. I think about Romans 8, 28, that says, you know, for all things work together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. But we were, I was devastated. How do you come back from that? It seems like it's, it's always lingering and it's always there in your life and you can't really escape it no matter how far you're getting. So how do you motivate yourself to keep pushing forward? It, it, it's kind of like if you have a scab on your elbow and you, and you keep ripping it off, you know, it's pain for a while. <laughs> That's what it's been like for 36 years, you know. Oh, my goodness. But, um, you know, Galatians 6 9 says not to be weary in well doing. There have been so many encouragements, so many people that have encouraged me along the way. Amen. But that, that was, that, that was a devastating thing, you know. So me and my wife, we bowed our heads and we walked out of there and uh, it was hard, you know. So, um, anyway, so it took three years to find a school desperate enough to hire a black coach. It was Hickman Mills in Kansas City. They needed a third coach and they had to wait until the season started because they had opened up throughout their district. So if anybody wanted the job, I wouldn't have got, gotten it. So that's how I got my career started. Three for the first three years, I was a referee, so I couldn't coach. I went and refereed all over. You know, graduated in the spring of '81, ready to coach, and I just couldn't do it. So it was, so it was hard. It was hard being a referee when you want to be a coach. You know, <laughs> so if I'm a coach, you know, and and generally it's been I get to coach places where no one else wants it. You got to start a program. You got to pay to do it. That kind of thing. As I look back on it. Uh, it's been it's been an unbelievable situation as far as that's concerned. Yeah, for sure. And th then as far as my wedding, so I got married my sophomore year. So in 1980, I married my wife Becky. And uh, let me see, maybe I don't know if you guys could if you could see the picture or not. Is that possible for you to see that picture at all? Yeah, I can see it a little bit. Yeah, wow. So that's my wedding picture. My wife wow. made that. My, my wife made that wedding dress. Okay. Mm -hmm. No way. So no way. <laughs> she made it. She's very talented. And so um, we, we dated she, her. Uh, I, I got introduced to her by one of her friends who was a wrestling manager. And my wife mm -hmm. dated a couple of wrestlers in high school. So wrestling was a sport she liked. She came and watched me wrestle. People like watching me beat people up, you know. She said, I want that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> said, okay, for sure. <laughs> but anyway, we both, we're both plugged into FCA and we did stuff together. And so it got to the point where, hey, we need to get married. So um, so I had to talk with my dad about it. And so that'll be part of the movie as well. He wasn't really excited. He talked about the political things that won't happen for you if you do it. And I said, I don't care about the politics. I said, I found a young lady I want to spend the rest of my life with. And um, that's what I want. So he said, okay, don't worry about it. So then we decided to get married. So August 8th of 1980, we got married in, at Central Missouri State down in Warrensburg. But two days before our wedding, I met her parents. August 6th, I met them. They did not want to meet me. They tried to talk us out of getting married. Oh a lot goodness. of tears, a lot of tears flowed. So her dad came up to me on that day and he shook my hand and he had a huge Bible. And so he sat down, he opened the Bible to Second Corinthians six fourteen that says, Thou shalt not be unevenly yoked. And he cut it there and he slammed the Bible in my face and he said, Son, I'm not prejudiced. I ate with a colored guy once. And for twenty one years they banned me from their house. Twenty-one so years. Twenty-one years. That was tough. You know, our first, our first Christmas, thirty-seven years ago, Christmas of nineteen eighty, I, I took her down to the family they lived in Odessa, Missouri. Took them down there for the Christmas dinner and the gift exchange. And when we got there, all the family was there, but the parents met me at the door and they made me sit in the car. 
So when you see this movie, you'll see me in the car and it's cold and snowy, and they're inside enjoying the meal, the fellowship, and the prayer. And we did that for three years. Mm-hmm. And I know people get people get confused. A lot of people ask me about that. Me and my wife talked about it going down the first time. We thought, sure, they'd let, let me in for Christmas. But uh, I said, if they didn't, we talked about Psalm 90:12 that says to number your days that you may obtain wisdom. And that was referring to the fact that her parents wouldn't be around forever. And I said, it's more important for you to be there with your family and your younger brother and sister. Uh, we talked about what Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and Rosa Parks and some of those people went through. They went through jail and beatings and some of them getting shot. I said, I'm just sitting out in the cold car on Christmas, so it's not even worth comparing to what a lot of the pioneers in our country have gone through. So I sat in the car. It was hard, but I still did that. So for the first three years of our marriage, Christmas of 80, 81, 82, I sat in the car on Christmas. And after that, she couldn't take it anymore. It was just too hard emotionally. So 21 years total came and went. And in 01, you had the planes into the building in New York City, 9-11. And so that'll be part of our movie because the Twin Towers, it it was the uh, time that her parents were preparing for their 50th anniversary. Her dad was a Korean War veteran. And uh, parents went to a little country church just east of Odessa. And in the fall of 01, their pastor talked about going to your grave with bitterness in your heart. And after all the events of 01, in October of 01, her dad called me up for the first time in 21 years. And he said, what are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? So it ended up being like Sidney Poitier, guess who's coming to dinner? This is Starting With A Story. I'm John Lee, and we'll be right back with Coach T. this movie a few times um, in describing your story. Tell us more about that. Is it solely based on the book that you've written? Well, the, the book the book that I wrote, Race in America, Called the Heel, has only been out for about approximately a year, but, but already four producers have the book, so we haven't determined what's going to happen. I want to you know, get the book saturated around the country a little bit more, but people all over the United States already have the book and in several countries, you know, countries like Australia, Germany, Canada, uh, Ethiopia, Mexico, because as an Uber driver, I meet the world and people all over the world, you know, the mm-hmm. tears flow in my car. They take, the, they get the book and I tell them to pop me an email or let me know when you get through with it, you know, your thoughts. And so I get cards from all over the United States and I get uh, emails from all over the United States and I get opportunities to go and speak. And the book is about healing. It's about creating a culture of honor and respect for people. So, and it was written in response to the rioting in Ferguson, mm-hmm. Baltimore and the Dallas police shootings. When those things were happening, I was getting called to speak to corporations, colleges, high schools, churches, civic groups, and other places as well. And the Q&A when I go and speak is off the chain. And so it inspired me to write the book. So I got with David Smale, who, uh, who's been involved in books and editing and photography for many years, a friend of mine through FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so I said, you got to help me with this thing. So we, we t- it took six months a whole lot of tears and about $12,000 to put this project together, but it's going extremely well. So people all over the country will email me or text me to get the book. So if they shoot me an email, then I ship them a book, you know, so um, I do that all the time. My house looks like UPS. I got books. I send, <laughs> send them. I did two, two events this weekend. Just have a little round table. You just relax and talk. I did have more events planned and just go and just talk. The theme is around, creating a culture of honor and respect for people. 
and how we can, how, how you treat your how you treat your neighbor. So what I'm so curious about is what experiences helped mold that shift in your life where you knew that you wanted to do more than just coach and play your part in the healing. Well, you know, all along I've been doing that. You know, um, probably about 25 years ago, people said you need to write a book, and I said, yeah, right. I said, who would believe the things I've been through? <laughs> Honestly, said, no. People would think no, that didn't that didn't happen like that. I was there, man. And and so along the way, some of the people that I've befriended, they've worked with me, they they know. But um, so anyway, so I decided as a coach, you know, I've been working with people and and, and traveling all over the country helping people. So that's been my my input into helping with the racial divide, just to serve everyone I can to the best of my ability. But then here recently, with so much stuff happening, you know, from like Rodney King to mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin, all these things, and that forces people to think about things. And so I noticed that when those things happen, people have a tendency to run to their corners, you know, and we and we are uh, sort of polarized in, in a large extent. But I'm noticing two streams, you know, when I get at go places and people ask me questions, they say. I say, coach, is, is, are things getting better or worse? And I tell them, I said, both, because there are people like yourself that I run into all over the United States that are about creating that culture of honor and respect for people. And they treat people with, with, with dignity. But there are those that are growing. And as you can see, like in Charlottesville, even though they're young, younger people, they're just so full of venom and hatred that uh, they're going the other direction. So, so those are the places I probably wouldn't get called to speak to. I don't debate people because there's no debate that you treat your neighbor with respect. There's no debate to that. And so I don't get into politics. I get into how you treat how you treat people. You know, when I see you at the mall or see you at the Chiefs football game, I want to do what's best for you, what's, what can help you. If you need help carrying something or opening the door or you're struggling in some kind of way, I want to try to help you. And so that's what I get a chance to do, and I try to train other people to do that. And it's been going very, very pleased. Awesome, awesome. Now, what advice would you give to someone that is struggling with this and struggling with racism in our country and our society today? Oh, that is an excellent question. And, and I was asked that just, just Sunday, you know. And so just simple things, you know. I think there's – and like I said, I'm, not, I'm just kind of generalizing. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of people that think that, well, it's up to the president, you know. And, oh, what, mm-hmm. you know, people say, is President Trump racist? I say it doesn't matter. You know, I say I probably never get a chance to meet him. It doesn't matter. I said things were in place long before he was born, long before Obama was born. And uh, there are systems out there that need adjustment. You know, they need to be adjusted. There are things. And I worked in corrections. I worked as a corrections officer. I worked in juvenile. So I saw people getting locked up and I saw how long certain people stay. And I found out what crime they're in for. So I know there's injustices out there. So you can't tell me any different. But it's not from listening to somebody with a particular narrative. It's actually being there. I've been in schools in the inner city and the suburbs and the country private schools, Catholic schools, and I see things are different. You know, our educational system is is unbelievable in the difference that we have. So when people ask, how can we heal? So we, we can't expect like President Trump to pass a law to make everybody treat about respect. So but what you can do is starting today, the people you work with or the people you see in the park or in the mall, you can treat them with respect. You can, you know, if you see they're struggling in any kind of way, do what you can to try to help them out. You know, on the day that my dad died, I was in Walmart. And there was a lady trying to reach and get a, an item that was way up high on the shelf. And I said, ma'am, I'll help you get that. And she looked at me like, no one ever does that. And she, she was surprised. I said, well, my dad passed away today, and that's what he would have wanted. That's what he would have done. And he would want me to uh, to serve the best of my ability. So little things like that, you know. And mm. I, I've done things like tutoring. If you could take, if you, you live in a part of the country where there's a divide 
you can take a group of kids that are that have opportunities you know they're we'll say like they live in the suburbs they've got you know they're well educated and they've got opportunities instead of going to Africa or China they can take 20 minutes and go to the city or on the outskirts of the city and tutor some kids or mm. take some baseball gloves go to, go to a park and start throwing balls around there's a couple kids hey you want to play catch show a kid how to play catch he's probably never played catch probably fatherless didn't have a dad to show him how to play catch so those are some of the things I've done I've taken some of my kids we've gone down we've done a football clinic, a baseball clinic. We did a wrestling clinic for kids from war-torn Somalia that were struggling here in our country, and we gave them awesome. a chance to shine. So little things like that. It doesn't cost a lot. doesn't take a lot of time just to help some kids and to encourage them in a classroom, in the community. If you're doing a community service project, go get some of those kids and have them learn to help and serve. It's all about those little things. I really like that. I, I admire that a lot. So when you actually go and try to do those little things to help the world a little bit more, what are some of the problems that you still face today? Well, I tell you what, you know, as I, I drive a school bus with kids and uh, I also do a lot of Ubering and I train athletes. So I'll get a call from some people to get a group of receivers together, or a group of quarterbacks and work technique with them or wrestlers. And um, I just noticed that, you know, even though I'm 59, you know, I've been coaching 36 years, it's still many places there's a closed door, you know. Hmm. So I'm still I'm still looking to get started. <laughs> looking for a place that will have a that will have a black coach that's a Christian that wants his kids on the team to excel on the wrestling mat, in the classroom and in the community. That's hard to find that, you know. Really, uh, really. Wow. Oh, it's very hard. And that's what I'm seeing that our society uh, and some of the educational situation it's it's not good at all. You know, mm-hmm. the kids are open. So many of these kids are fatherless. They have, they're rudderless. They don't know where they're going. They're angry. And then you sit them in a the class and try to teach them Shakespeare and they don't know or care anything about Shakespeare. It just doesn't work. Yeah. They can't read and they can't write. You know, you have to deal with that woundedness. You know, you can buy them a brand new book, a brand new computer. But then the problem is they come from devastated homes. And I know the school can't go in there and fix the home, but they need to be aware that this kid is like special ed. So a lot of kids, especially in our city schools, are like special ed and that they're not, they can't just sit there and you give them read chapter five and six and then turn in your report because they don't know where they're going to go that tonight. They don't know next month where they're going to be. Things are in chaos, you know, and it's like, so me as a coach driving kids home and getting to see what they deal with, it's like, oh my goodness, it's unbelievable. And so, so that's, so that's, that's kind of drives me to, to help as many kids as I can. And while I can, that's where that Psalm 9012 comes into play again. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen your mission change as time progresses and as society changes along with it? Well, you know, one thing I've noticed is that um, I, I get to meet people from all over the world. And I and, and you talk about help, you know, like meeting people like yourself, you know, and getting their input. People from mm-hmm. Chicago and Dallas, they help me with this book. People from L.A. and San Francisco, and people from Germany and China. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, to hear to have access to their perspectives on what they've seen in their country or their town and what uh, they feel can help. Uh, that's been tremendous. You know, it's been very, very encouraging. There's people from, like this kid from Germany, he came to the United States. He's involved with uh, IHOP, you know, International House of Prayer. And uh, he's involved in international ministry. And he came in my car and he, and he said, I need to pray for you, Coach T. And he rocked me, man. It's like, oh, you got me so inspired. And this is a guy from Germany, had a German accent. And he grew up in Germany and he talked about, how the German schools deal with Hitler and that kind of stuff and how they admit, you know, he said they go overboard in talking about uh, 
you know, what's happened, you know, during Nazi Germany and the concentration camps and things like that. They said, but in America, we don't, we don't really want to take ownership of that. And I noticed that, you know, it's like our, our books don't show that stuff. Now there, I've been in some classes where the teachers explain what happened with the, with the Native American and taking their land and making them go to the Carlisle school and things like that. And then when the uh, Chinese came over to work on the uh, railroad, you know, working for that Yang money and that kind of stuff, you know, so they talk about that. And then when the Sarah project, I think whatever it's called, when the people from Mexico came up during World War II because they needed some bodies here because our soldier boys were over and so they need people to work in the uh, orchards and stuff. So they brought a lot of Hispanic people up, I guess, from, from Mexico to do that. And then it's like, war's over, go back home. <laughs> like, hey, we like it here. <laughs> we'll stay. You know, so, so, so I'm learning from all these different people from around the world yeah. as to how, how they're perceived as, uh, Americans, you know, and I noticed that a lot of people, let's say you're from Poland or you're from Croatia or someplace. I've had a lot of people tell me to say, you want to come to America and be considered white. You say, that's the deal, man. If you come in, you're in, you know, so don't speak your native language. Don't even refer to that, you know, and uh, just come over and, and you can blend in and be considered, considered white. And that's the good thing. And that's what they're told. You know, and so so many people have told me that kind of privately. So it's like, wow. And I see I see that, you know, because in America, things have been different after World War Two, the GI Bill and, and FHA loans. So like that, you know, it, you know, the black guys went over and were part of the Tuskegee Airmen or whatever. They couldn't come back and take advantage of, of the low interest loans and college and stuff like that because the schools wouldn't let them in. Mm. You know? So uh, so there were so many things, so many. It's, it's like you're a, running a track. You know? It's like you say me and you were running a hundred meter dash. And you could wear just your warm-ups, your sweats. But then I have to wear like a backpack with a 50-pound weight. You know, yeah. I've got ankle weights. So you got things holding you down, you know. And some people I've noticed over the years have gotten away from that. And, I mean, they've been able to be successful. You know, they're mm. doctors, they're attorneys, they're, they're doing whatever in life, and they're successful. And things haven't held them back. But there's a lot of people that they still have not gotten over that. They still, mm. they still survive as if they're back in the 1930s. And, uh, mm. I've, no, I've noticed that, and I've talked to them, and I see they have 1930s type mentality, even though this is 2018. Mm. Yeah, so people are yeah. still damaged, and so forgiveness and empathy need to be two things that we need in America. And there are people that are doing that, but there's other people that are like so full of hate and bitterness that they can't get over. So I want to try to help the best way I can. Yeah, amen, amen. So you mentioned talking to a bunch of different people from all over the world, getting all these different perspectives. What's one of the biggest misconceptions that you've heard from all these different people surrounding this topic in general. Well, well, you know, I, uh, from just in America, people from like New York or Boston or California, when they come to town and they, they're here for a business trip, or whatever, and they say, wow, they say, I see the difference here in the Midwest, you know, or in Kansas city area. He said, it's so segregated here. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. You know, I live it's, it's <laughs> yeah, you swimming yeah. in the water. You're you know? living in it. <laughs> yeah. And so when they talk about it, they say, you know, if you came to our area, there's a lot of black coaches, you know, and, and, and black teachers and stuff like that. But in a lot of these schools around here, there's none, or they might have one token person or maybe a young black coach that maybe went to like, let's say if you're like in Olathe Northwest, use that as an example. And let's mm -hmm. say the, the track coach went to Olathe East, you, you know, you're kind of like, you get in because you're from that area. But someone from my era, uh, it's not from a suburban school, you know, or you didn't play uh, NFL football or play football in Oklahoma or something like that. You know, I know it's like, let's say like for instance, LeBron came to Blue Springs, wanted to be the head coach. They probably mm -hmm. found a way to make it happen. You see, so oh, for Tiger sure. Woods, you have to. <laughs> if Tiger wanted to be the golf coach at uh, the Barstow school or something like that, they'd find a way to do that, you know, 
But when you're my age and you're from like this East High School, you wrestle Central Missouri. That's not like wrestling Iowa or Penn State. You don't get those opportunities. Now my kid, my sons, if they applied for those for a job at some of the nice schools around here, they would probably have an opportunity to do that. So things are getting better. But I'm just saying over the years, uh, for someone like myself, when I go to these coaches meetings, you can look and see who's there. And, you, mm-hmm. and you, for the most part, you're just not there, you know. And then with the opportunities you get, usually they're not very good. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, it's hard. <laughs> and so so that's why I, I, most of the places I've been have been uh, where you have inexperienced people, low numbers, low budget, low in every area, uh, but still able to make the kids be successful. And I've seen that happen, so I know it can be done. So I try to put an I can in the spirit of all the kids that I coach, no matter where they're from. So that's some of the things that I've noticed over the years, just that people have a tendency to feel like, especially now, that, hey, everything's even. Everything's, you know, I can't tell how many people tell me, hey, we all bleed red blood. You know, everybody's Mm. even. And it's like they must not have been around very much to say that. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I believe believe everybody bleeds red blood. That's that's, Mm -hmm. that's makes sense. Our country was never founded like that. You know, when you look at the Mm -hmm. Constitution, when you look at the, uh, like in 1669, they had what they call the Casual Killing Act of 1669 that meant that a black life did not matter because back in the day the master's wife would kill one of those kids you know the slave you know beat him for whatever reason and then it's like okay so what do you do you kill the person usually in america you go to jail if you kill somebody so they came up with this casual killing act so killing the black kids like killing a bug or a mouse or something like that and and, and so that was on the that's been on the books in our country and i was never able to find out when it ended but mm-hmm. something like that can cause a divide in a country when when, when you're you're not treated as a human when you look at some of the pictures from the lynchings and stuff, how people is like going to a Kansas City Chiefs football game. People in their Sunday best would stand by the body and take pictures, and then they would send postcards. And then let's say if, if you wanted to be at the lynching but you were busy, you'd say, hey, bring me a piece of his liver or a piece of his finger or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have some kind of soup, you know? And so when you dehumanize people like that, so you have little kids there, and the little kids didn't do the killing, but they look at that person hanging as that's not a person. Because they thought mm-hmm. if it was like a puppy or a cat hanging, People would be like outraged, but it was just a black person hanging. So then what happens is you come to 2018 and you have people that, have, that you know, their grandparents have talked, you know, have kind of talked about other people in a negative light. So even though you don't know those people, you might not think like they do in your heart, you think, well, they're, they're less than, you know, and so people have told me that. So it, it shows that uh, just a disregard for a person's, uh, the, their value, you look at them as, as less than. So when I see people, when I see you and I meet people, I look at them as a, as a fully valued person, but that's not always the case, you know? And so when you're, when you realize that, then you can say, okay, I see why, why they're, uh, feeling this way. And I've talked to people that have that same opinion. And that's what's helped me out, you know, because listening to other people and what they deal with has helped me to realize that not everybody looks at it like you do, you know, so that's mm-hmm. been helpful. Mm-hmm. So we're coming close to the end of the interview now, but if you had a piece of advice to empower those that are struggling with this and those that want to continue and share in your mission to start the healing process and begin the discussion on race in America and getting rid of the hatred, what would you tell them? Well, you know, that's, um, I would say that to, to, um, to try to create that culture of honor and respect for people, when you go wherever you go, mall, park, whatever, try to find someone that maybe is not like you and try to befriend them in some kind of way. Even if it's like you're in line paying for groceries, just say hi to them. How you doing? You know, that kind of thing. 
and then to get some positive uh, positive feedback from some people there. I think that would be helpful. Awesome. Any opportunity you can to serve someone, try to try to do that. But then realize that there's there's a group of people that are damaged. You know, they're damaged from years and years of distrust and mistreatment. So they may not respond real positive right away. That's something I've had to get over. You know, some of the kids I help, they're so damaged, they don't appreciate it. You know, they feel that you're taking advantage of them. There's that distrust that's out there. And so so be aware that you might try to uh, reach out to someone and they're, they're thinking, oh, these people have to get me. They're trying to take advantage of me. So don't, you know, Galatians 6, 9 says not to be weary in well-doing. So don't get offended and then not want to help people. Oh, these people don't appreciate me helping them, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've tried to continue to do, even though some people don't receive it, continue to try to help them serve them and do the things that are going to bring honor to your family, your city, to Christ, those types of things. And you're going to be okay. Not going to be able to solve it all in, in two weeks or two months or two years because it's been hundreds of years. We had hundreds of years of a Holocaust in the United States when you really look at it, you know, the fear and the, the terrorism that went through. And so you can't just fix it in a few years, you know. You can't just let a guy play NBA basketball and say everything's good, you know. So yeah, that's, that's simple stuff that they could do starting tomorrow. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. I have three questions left. Before I get to those, I wanted to take the time to recognize you for a moment. Um, you were changing minds and yeah. making a difference on people one at a time. And I really appreciate that. Your passion, your enthusiasm, your genuine heart, it, it's all so infectious. And I'm really glad for your your drive to kind of see a hole in the system and try to fill it with just your presence. So I wanted to acknowledge you for that and really thank you for your time. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So now as we finish up the interview, I have three quick questions for you. And these are okay. a little more on the fun side. But the first <laughs> one is, what's been the favorite chapter of your life so far? Favorite chapter was, uh, I would say, wrestling in college. That was a lot of fun, traveling around the country, getting to beat people up and you know, road <laughs> trips. And, and you know, I had a lot of success. I, I, was, I was so different. You know, I was a, I was a freestyle wrestler. Most guys would get in there and shoot a single leg. and They'd win a match two to one or three to one. I'd win a match 30 to 10. You know, I just, oh I lit guys goodness. up. I had the mentality that if a guy's able to walk after I wrestling, I've done something wrong. I was very, <laughs> I was like UFC back in the 70s. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I feel bad now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so intimidating. <laughs> so if you, if you had to give a title to the next chapter in your life, what would you title it? I would say finishing strong. Finishing Psalm strong. Psalm 912, finishing strong. Hey, I thought you said you're just starting. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, my my dad lived age seventy. He, he passed away. He had a heart attack at age seventy. So I mm-hmm. turned six later on this year. So I said, eh, I mean, I got ten more years or whatever. You never know. But uh, yeah. I might have two years. But I'm going to maximize that time and serve as many people as I can, regardless of what happens around the periphery. Amen. Awesome, awesome. And just to finish up, if you had to put a title to the book of your whole entire life up until this Ooh. moment, what would you title that book? <laughs> I would say uh, <laughs> overcoming the uh, overcoming major obstacles through Christ. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again, Coach C. It's been an honor and an absolute pleasure talking to you. So have a wonderful night and stay safe, stay you. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Best to you, Big John. Awesome. Thank you, Coach Steve.
there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Coach D as much as I have. His insight, his experience, and his passion are truly remarkable, and I feel so blessed to have had this opportunity. Make sure to get a copy of his book, Race in America, A Call to Heal. It's a phenomenal read, and I really think that you guys can gain something from it. Now, if you want to continue this conversation with Coach T himself, send him an email at coachttd at yahoo.com. If you enjoyed this episode or something resonated with you from his story, tell us about it. Let us know your thoughts and your experiences. If you found value in this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, leaving a review, or even sharing it with your friends. And lastly, if you have a story or know someone that does that you think would connect with others, shoot me an email at share at startingwithastory.com to potentially be interviewed for a future episode. All of the music in today's episode was originally composed by Bryson Kemp. Check them out at brysonkempmusic.com. As always, I want to be able to connect with people and connect people to each other through storytelling. Now you can be a part of that journey as well. Go out there and share your story. This is John Lee on Starting With A Story, signing off. Stay safe, stay you. <laughs>